Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 412th edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. And we're broadcasting across the world in this, our ninth year, from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in the Hollywood Hills in Los Angeles, California. This is the place where entertainment and technology intersect. Now, if you've been to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it is a brilliant movie. So if you haven't seen it, you should. DiCaprio and Pitt were both phenomenal, both worthy of a Academy Award nomination. And we're also all very familiar with going to the movies and watching a $150 million movie for nine bucks or 13 bucks, and yet paying $8 for 60 cents worth of popcorn and $6.50 for a Coke, whose syrup I'm sure costs the theatre about 25 cents. So, what the hell's going on here? I don't know how we got here, but no one at least no one in their right mind, would invest in a movie theatre business model. The movie business is certainly in decline. So that explains the movie concessions racket because it's movie concessions prices that's keeping the industry afloat unless you want to pay twice the price for tickets, which I guess most of us are not prepared to do. Having said that, we're all seriously overpaying at the concession sand. And while movies, food and beverage prices vary widely depending on whether you're in Los Angeles or New York or in Kansas or somewhere, theatre size and a number of other factors affects the prices. But popcorn prices vary from as low as a dollar to as high as $14 at some theatres. And at most major movie theatres, you pay around $8 for a medium-sized bag of buttered popcorn, nearly the price of an average movie ticket. And at 11 cups, the average medium-sized movie popcorn sells for 73 cents a cup. By contrast, you can buy a 175-cup bag of genuine movie theatre popcorn at Amazon for 48 bucks, about 20 cents a cup. So you're paying nearly four times what you can get it for elsewhere. And a movie theatre icy, which is the same as a 7-Eleven Slurpee at $6.49, is five times more expensive than the Slurpee at 7-Eleven. And a soda at about six bucks is ridiculous. It's at least three times the cost of a store-bought Coke. And if you happen to buy M&Ms or something like that, they're about $4.75 to $5, which is um, what you could buy three boxes for at Walmart. So if I go on a date night with my wife and get a popcorn to share and a couple of sodas and some M&Ms, I'm looking at 25 bucks, which is more than it cost me to get into the theatre. So if you're a family of four, the cost of snacks could run you up 50 bucks. Richard McKenzie, a professor at the University of California, Irvine, and a fellow metal member, I might add, 
determined that it cost the average theatre around 90 cents to produce a bag of popcorn. So at $8, that's a nearly an 800% markup, including the cup and a free refill. That six-buck soft drink costs the theatre about 75 cents, which is about a 600% markup. And candy, which can be purchased wholesale for $1.16, that's also about a 400% markup. But you've got to remember that theatres don't make much on tickets. So when a theatre wants to show a film like Hollywood, it must agree to pay the distributor a percentage of all ticket sales. And this percentage is higher during the first few weeks and decreases over time, but it works out to be about 70 cents. Sorry, 70%. So if a movie theatre sells a ticket for 10 bucks, it only gets three bucks. So when you see that a, um, a movie grosses 100 million, the movie theatre only gets about 30 million of that. And that's between all of the movie theatres. And that's without counting accounting for any other expenses. So movies are a lost leader. In reality, the price of a movie ticket hasn't gone up much in the last 90 years. In 1929, a ticket price was 35 cents. Today, it's $9. Adjusted for inflation, eh, there's not much difference. And there's an old theatre adage. The way they find out where a theatre's going to go, they find a really good place to sell popcorn and then build a movie theatre around it. I love that. That's really clever. This is no different than Microsoft, for instance, who sells its Xbox consoles at a steep loss to get you to buy them and then make really big returns on games and accessories. So even with $8 popcorn and 84% profit margins, most movie theatre owners aren't living the high life. In fact, they're struggling. Profits from popcorn are used to pay off the high overhead costs of running a theatre, like staff, rent, air conditioning, utilities, often security, and the constant upgrades like surround sound and IMAX and 3D that consumers demand these days. So the reality is that less than 10% of the US population goes to the movies. Just 60 years ago, it was 65% of people went go to, used to go to the movies. And those who do go are attending less. In 2018, the average theatre goer went three and a half times, down from five times just 15 years ago. However, having said that, to give you an idea of how much popcorn's being sold, Currently, there are 40,759 screens in America, up from 36,000 screens 20 years ago. So that's 8% up. So while $8 popcorn's a ripoff, it what it's what enables you to go and see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And if you haven't seen it, make sure you do. It is brilliant. I've seen it twice. I loved it. Do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We've got about 1.7 million daily subscribers. It takes 30 seconds. Well, it's not quite true. It probably takes you a minute and a half every day. And every day we tackle a different subject from advances in medicines to new apps to new technologies. 
We talk about things like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain, Olympic Games, all sorts of stuff. And tomorrow's newsletter is it about whether AI is a force for good or evil. As you know, there's a lot of people promoting AI, and there's people like Elon Musk who thinks that AI is going to lead to the destruction of the planet. Who's right? Because AI is now impacting so many parts of our everyday life, from healthcare to criminal justice to education to hiring, and they're all happening simultaneously and very quickly. So we discuss the very serious implications about people, how people will be affected by AI, and we do that in tomorrow's Bob Pritchard Daily Newsletter. So if you don't get it, which you should, 1.7 million of your peers get it, why aren't you getting it? No wonder you're falling behind. To receive it, simply go to my website, bobpritchard.com. And subscribe. It'll take you about 10 seconds. It'll be the best decision you ever made. You'll be glad you did. Now, the NBA is considering their creation of an investment fund to buy minority ownership interests across multiple NBA teams, and that could stabilise team market values. NBA franchise valuations are absolutely skyrocketing. The Brooklyn Nets just sold for $2.3 billion. Who'd buy the Nets for $2.3 billion? It may sound like a good thing, but crazy high valuations pose challenges for owners who want to get out of the game. There's so many owners that um, have these teams or investments in these teams and want to get out, but can't get out because the prices are so high. So it's not uncommon for an owner to put a holding for sale and then yank it back when they can't get the terms they're looking for. You know, think of how many people can afford to plonk down $2.3 billion for a sports team. And uh, I owned a portion of a sports team a few years ago. And uh, on one hand, it's a license to print money. And on the other hand, it's a license to keep putting money in. (laughs) So many things like that. I was just, just reminded me, I used to own um, a Pops Orchestra. And boy, if you think a um, sports team's a way to lose money, try owning an orchestra. Boy, oh boy. Now, it's not uncommon for an owner to put a holding for sale, as I said, and, you know, you just can't get the price. So an investment fund made of small equity stakes in a team portfolio, that opens the playing field to a lot more investors So instead of plonking down $2 billion for a team, an investor might pay $100 million for a 5% interest. The NBA hasn't outlined the terms of this deal yet, but there should be plenty to discuss at the um, owners' meeting in New York next week when they're going to discuss this topic. See, when you think about it, how many people can actually plonk down a hundred million for five percent stake. That's a huge amount of money. Now the Dutch social enterprise Fairphone just announced the launch of the Fairphone Three, which is the world's most sustainable smartphone. One of the big things setting Fairphone apart is its repairable. Get that repairable design. So where other companies go by the you break it, you buy a new one model, 
Fairphone 3 only has seven modules. So if something breaks, you just order a replacement part, whack it in, and you're on your way. And to drive the point home, when you unbox the Fairphone 3, it comes with its own Phillips head screwdriver that will allow you to pull the thing apart and replace any bit you want. Well, that's pretty cool. You know, one of the things with iPhones, if you break anything, first of all, you've got to find someone to fix it. And then you've got to make an appointment. And you've got to wait forever to get in to get them fixed. And then when you do, cost your fortune. This way, you take out your Phillips head, undo the thing, stick in the new bit, and off you go. Now, Fairphones are not designed to be the most cutting edge on the market, but they should last you seven years. So they've reduced the CO2 emissions and say maybe save the world by eliminating the planned obsolescence philosophy. You know, like iPhone just came out with um, iPhone 11, and there's about four versions of that. And it seems like every time you turn around, iPhone's got a new phone out. And every time you want to buy one, it's a thousand bucks. Fairphone's taken big steps towards making sure people assembling its phones are happy. So rather than punishing manufacturers who fail to make margins, the company pays workers bonuses for increased performance. So they use the carrot, not the stick. And the uh, company has confirmed it's tin and tungsten are conflict-free. Its gold is fair trade. Its copper and plastics are sourced from recycled goods. And now it's just working on the last piece of the puzzle, a more sustainable system to source cobalt. Now, Fairphone knows it's not going to take over the market, but establishing a responsible supply chain means other smartphone companies, maybe, will emulate some of their practices, and that would be a good thing. Now, as every entrepreneur knows, the hardest part of any startup is raising capital. It is bloody difficult. Now, for 25 years, Tony Drexel Smith has led internal and external teams that have developed an average of 50 capital formation packages each year that range from $500,000 up to $10 million. Tony's got a lot of tips about how to raise funds if you're a, a startup or an early stage company. So I'll be back with Tony in just a moment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. 
Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Business Radio Show. Now, over the past nine years, gee, that's a long time now that I think about it. <laughs> a hell of a lot of preparation in nine years of radio, I tell you. Um, we've given you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting business people. We uh, talk about the projects and the initiatives that they've undertaken. And we talk to the entrepreneurs behind these projects about the services they provide, about the challenges they've faced. And we try to ascertain what it is that makes them tick. What is it that makes them unique? We're very conscious of the fact that 98% or more of all entrepreneurs and startups today fail. So only 2% succeed. So what we try to find out is what have those 2% got that the other 98%, at least on their first effort, didn't have? Now, as every entrepreneur knows, the hardest part of any startup is raising funds. I'm going through that right now, (laughs) and it is bloody difficult. Now, for 25 years, Tony Drexel-Smith has led an internal and external teams that have developed an average of 50 capital formation packages per year that range from $500,000 to $10 million. And since 1993, Tony's heard approximately 8,000 elevator pitches. And as you all know, coming up with an elevator pitch is difficult. He's been hired by more than 1,400 companies and completed more than 700 projects. The clients clients that scored 925 or better through the Capital Readiness Report, which we'll hear about when we talk to... Tony, um, it sounds hard though, doesn't it? 925 out of 1,000, I think you've probably got to be pretty good. And people that have scored that have experienced an 80% success rate amongst sourcing capital. Moreover, of those that scored 925 or higher, 75% of them are still in business today, and that's another feat on its own. Hi, Tony. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network. You're being heard right around the world. Bob, thanks so much. Glad to be on and uh, look forward to the interview today. It's, um, you know, one of the biggest, hardest things to do. I mean, so many people have great ideas and they're good at um, creating things. But when it goes comes to going out and knocking on doors and seeking money, it seems to me that that's a really specialised thing. Money seems to have its own language and, and uh, that most entrepreneurs don't understand. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, it, one of the very first um, conversations we typically have when we're initially engaged with a client is, you know, what, what type of capital have you been seeking? Um, very often they're banging the wrong doors with the wrong offering documents with the wrong story. Um, you know, trying to ensure that your current stage of development, the type of business you're in, the industry sector, subsector, uh, is in alignment with the type of capital that's being sought is, is one of the nuances that a lot of entrepreneurs just don't have experience with. So they have a friend that's a venture capitalist or an investment banker or a broker dealer or an angel investor. Or, I mean, there's just so many different types of capital and uh, entrepreneurs don't necessarily understand that there's major differences between them. And when you're talking about a private placement memorandum or a simple safe document, 
or, or you know, just in a simple engagement or promissory note, I mean, a convertible note, what's going to be the right type of capital for the situation that they're in? And, and that's the very first thing that our company does when we're engaged with the client is determine what is the current stage of development, what situation are they in, and what's the right solution. And once you determine that right solution, the very next question is, do they qualify for that solution? And if not, then we need to look at what are, what are the alternatives um, to the solution. And ultimately, we want to try to give them the, the, the right answer. Um, but often we have to tell them that we don't believe that they have a, a fundable business. Right. And being straightforward and honest about that um, is the most difficult part of my job. And, and very often, um, I'm not that popular with, with them because I tell them the truth and they don't necessarily want to hear it. Um, yeah. Because there are 46 different ways to finance a company and when you look at it from a spectrum of left to right, you know, the left side of the spectrum is high risk to the investor, expensive money to the entrepreneur, and then if you flow way over to the right side of the spectrum, it's the lowest risk money and the least expensive to the entrepreneur. And so we want to gauge on that, on that spectrum left to right, where does this client fall on that list? And very often the cost of the money is so high that the entrepreneur um, is, is not that thrilled with pursuing it. But if we tell them that, look, that is the, comp the, the type of capital that you currently qualify for, and if you intend to pursue capital, you kind of need to stay on this part of the spectrum. Otherwise, you're wasting your time and money, and you're only going to get frustrated. Um, yeah. And so that's the initial meeting with the client is to try to get to that point first, and then determine, well, what documentation is necessary to qualify, and what uh, due diligence and materials need to be created in order to support that type of capital. Hey, um a friend of mine is Tim Draper, who I'm sure you're very familiar with. Um, Tim says the most important thing uh, that he looks for when he's talking to people who are seeking money is the people themselves, their personalities, their drive, how much commitment they've got to the project. That's far more important than any other aspect of the business. Do you agree with that? I, I, I agree with it to a certain extent. Um, you may have a fantastic management team um, that has all the qualifications necessary to operate a business. And while that is a great positive and a requirement, we also need to ensure that there is a buying market. We need to ensure that the product or service is actually needed in the marketplace. We need to make sure that intellectual properties are properly protected. I mean, there are so many other issues beyond just management and as far as we're concerned um, at Blue Moon, after a 10-year study of, of 300 companies, um, we did a formal white paper in 2018 with the results that tell us that there's 334 different attributes of successful firms. Um, we found that out of, of working directly with 300 companies over a 10-year period, that 44 of them um, ended up being what we define as being successful in that they they got a hold of capital, they implemented their business model, and they repaid their lenders or investors, and they stayed in business during the term of our study. And the commonalities amongst those 44 firms were that they had five different areas covered. Um, they had covered their company and business, that it was well-defined, there was a good elevator pitch, 
the situation made sense, the company and its entities were well organized, and there was clear due diligence about the, the business and product or service itself. Um, and then second, that they had a solid set of financials, not only that they were well organized for whatever historical and startup monies, but that their forecast made sense and that the valuations around the, their business made sense at this stage. And then third is process and marketing. So not necessarily operations, because operations is part of process, but we find is that process plus people equals results. Yeah. And so that's, that's what we're looking for is great people, but do you also have a great process? And does that process implement um, the whole spectrum of your product or service in terms of development of it, the presentation of it, um, the acquisition of customers, the implementation of the actual product or service itself, and follow-up. So that's all the third piece. And in our minds, the fourth piece is the people and the culture, management, staffing, training, all of those issues. Um, we look at it as um, a holistic approach. When we do our assessments, section four has more validity and points towards the thousand point process than any other. So there's no question that we believe that the management team is vital. But when we look at the management team, we look at the leadership, their experience as entrepreneurs, their experience in the industry sector, subsector that they're in. We put a lot of effort into analyzing the management style. Um, and who are the consultants and advisors that are part of the team, from accountants to attorneys to bankers to other collaborators, um, then staffing. You know, we again, people plus plus process equals results. So, what kind of human resources, job training, job descriptions, qualifications, all of those things are analyzed by our process. And then, last on section four in people and culture is the culture itself. You know, what, how much of luck, timing, and belief is involved, how much masterminding, optimistic realism, how organized are they, and so on. And then the fifth piece um, that we look at that has a lot of validity, 18% of our thousand, is legal. And um, what we find is when we really dig deep in 10 years and look at failure, um, failure in business is most often related to sickness, in illness, injury, death, divorce, partner disputes, and legal issues. Whether it be that there was a risk management problem with, with uh, insurance or intellectual property wasn't properly uh, acquired and protected, or the type of capital they raised didn't have the right legal documentation around it, and so on. So there's a lot of parts and pieces around legal. So that's how we approach it is, we believe it, it's a five piece um, viewpoint, not any one being more important than the other. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess one of the biggest problems that, uh, well, a problem that um, many startups have is clashes between founders and founders that don't have the right legal structure between them. And, you know, everything's fine when you're struggling to um, get the company started. But once it starts, that's when the trouble starts too. And uh, a lot of companies fall apart because the um, founders don't have proper legal structure. That's right. That's right. And that's covered in section one and five. Five being the legal side, one being more of a real breakdown on the entity itself and the due diligence around that, how the corporation was structured or LLCs, 
Um, were the capitalization tables created properly from the beginning? Was there clarity on the type of classes of stock, how they were issued and to whom and for how much and so on? That's why, you know, while it may sound overwhelming that there's 334 different attributes, realize that just in the first few minutes of our conversation, we've probably already addressed a hundred of them yeah. um, because there's so, there's minutia. I mean, we down the nitty gritty um, when we talk about these points. Is, it, is now a good time for, um, for investment? Um, you know, the banks give you negative, um, negative interest almost. There's no money in the, the stock exchange is not going anywhere. Um, property prices seem to be on the way down. Um, is this a good time to be investing in startup companies? I believe that there's always a, a matter of balance and that the balance shifts from time to time based on market conditions. And so when you're working with uh, startups, um, very often the type of capital is alternative speculative capital. And so when we talk about good timing for investors, it's really a matter of how much of their portfolios, whether they're investment bankers or they're institutional or they're accredited high net worth individuals, the real question comes down to what percentage of their entire portfolio should go towards alternative speculative. So in cases like today where the rates are very low and the interest rates returns are low and bonds and so on where you're trying to have a smart balanced portfolio and reacting to the marketplace, what you'll find is that instead of two or 3% of a portfolio going to alternative speculative capital, now you're seeing more like six, eight, or maybe even as high as 10% in a, into alternative speculative capital to try to offset the return on investment expectations over the course of the year throughout the whole portfolio, while also ensuring that there's enough of a counterbalance for the high risk of alternative speculative capital is being um, thought through. And so when the market's going great and interest rates are high, you'll often see low numbers on on alternative speculative capital. Yeah. In today's market, um, I would suggest to you that the average person I'm meeting with are looking at 5% or more. Yeah. Um, very rare that there's anything over 10. 10 is a very high number for alternative speculative risk when it comes to portfolio management. Right. So apart from Blue Moon, what are the best sources for due diligence that are being leveraged today? Well, aside from Blue Moon, there are obviously many a firm out there that will do fact-checking. There are fact-checking firms and firms that focus on due diligence. But what's often the best and smartest way to do it is to ensure that you have industry professionals involved. Yep. Because they're those that are most often associated with the industry. So we often hire industry um, people that are you know, subject matter experts and we have a, the whole reason why our company is called Blue Moon Advisors is because we've created a database of subject matter experts so that when we bring on a project and we believe it to be fundable and the feasibility of funding is high, they've scored well in our capital range report process, the next step is to do a, a reality check with an industry insider that can give us insights about what's really happening in that particular industry sector or subsector so that we can have a double check on the due diligence piece and ensure that what we're saying and what we found to be true on the internet and what we found to be true in the traditional um, places you can find data and yeah. data analytics. Let's talk to a real person 
that can now tell us the realities of what we've read and seen um, from today's traditional research methodologies. So over the years, you've no doubt developed quite a um, um, database of investors. Are they, have you got them broken up sort of into people who favour medical investments and people who favour um, entertainment investments and people who favour something else? Are they all, is that sort of broken down into subcategories? I would suggest to you that when they're that detailed, it's, it's more that they're um, angel investors with specific industry knowledge. Um, typically, institutional investors are looking for balanced portfolios, so they may have any number of different industry sectors and subsectors that they're interested in. They typically have a primary and a secondary, and then they'll have numerous other offshoots that they're looking into, investing into. There's, it's rare that someone's open to everything. That doesn't happen often. But um, when, you're, when you're working with any organization that's got uh, assets to invest over half a billion, there tends to be a certain amount of uh, crossover and multiple industry just for a good portfolio balance. I would suggest to you that a lot of people like biotech because sure. biotech is so interesting and continues to reshape our world all the time. But the challenge with biotech is that it takes a long time to get it implemented. And when you talk bioscience, you've got uh, issues with government agency involvement and having to go through trials and clinical trials, which takes many years. So those kinds of risks are there. And so while those are exciting places to put money for the long haul, you still need some short-term things too. So you'll find that there's people that'll invest into technology via apps. You know, Silicon Valley still has many great businesses that are on board. Um, obviously, over the last nine years or so, um, the entire CBD and cannabis space has gone through already a couple of different cycles. Now it's moving into the M&A cycle. There's a lot of merger acquisition activity in that yep. particular space. And so more and more bigger money is getting involved because they're more interested in the M&A piece, being able to find out which companies out there actually have real potential and trying to do some roll-up efforts are, are things that are happening today in that space. Um, you know, there's, the, the spaces that have not done well have gone flat or south or, as we all know, I mean, retail it, is difficult nowadays. Difficult? Jeez. <laughs> yeah, especially <laughs> those that are, you know, brick and mortar. But hey, at the same time, people still buy clothing and they still buy durable goods. It's just a matter of the distribution channels have changed. Absolutely. And so, and because the, the people that have gotten involved in those industries are huge, right? It's very difficult to enter in a marketplace when you're competing against companies that are doing hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue. Yep. So, um, you know, we, we have um, a lot of projects today in the transportation sector um, because our infrastructure, not only in the U.S., but internationally, is in real trouble. Yep. Um, there, there's a real push by many, many government agencies, federal, state, uh, municipal, um, that are looking to address uh, the infrastructure issues. Um, so a good amount of our projects today are related to infrastructure. Um, many of them, in fact, out of 83 active projects today, 15 are infrastructure related, whether it be new technologies in concrete or um, Internet of Things and how you're managing transportation and mass transportation, um, security and mass transportation, 
um, the development of new subway systems and busing systems and people movers and the ability for us to track all of that and manage it. So there's a lot of different types of businesses in that sector. And there's still, after 10 years of smartphones, there's still new apps that come out that are pretty fascinating and interesting um, that people hadn't thought of before. Sure. You know, an example is a company like good to go they're called uh, good to go.global. Um, they created an app um, whereas you can be in a city like San Francisco, you need a bathroom, their app will then help you direct to a clean quality bathroom that they have remodeled and work with the store that has that bathroom. And you get to actually put yourself in the queue to use their bathroom if you're in your car or not yet at that facility. <laughs> and that company is growing so fast that their board now includes the founder of Whole Foods and an executive VP and CFO of Dunkin' Donuts and a major player that helped build the Android at Google because that company is growing rapidly. In fact, Lyft just put together an agreement with them to help their drivers be able to find quality good bathrooms without having to buy a cup of coffee just to use the restroom. Yeah. So we, we, we're seeing a lot of different things. And, you know, it's also fascinating that typically because we work a lot with early stage companies, we see things that often are not mainstream for many years. And sure. so as an example, now we're seeing the holograms. We're seeing the use of, of spatial technologies that are going to be able to have people be in virtual reality meetings and so on. And while I believe we're still in the early stages of that, it will likely become very much more mainstream in the next few years. So we're seeing ideas today that seem outrageous. Like yeah. I'm sure at some point in the 1920s, the idea of television and color television sounded outrageous. Um, yeah. We're now seeing those types of technologies come to us now. Um, we're also seeing some new medical devices that I would have never imagined um, would ever be realistic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, that now today they're in clinical trials of, you know, various technologies that you could never imagine, things that address cancer and so on. And, you know, we, we see things like that. And the question is, you know, of all these great ideas, which ones are reality and which ones will really become something and not as part of the whole risk factor. And why we go through such a heavy amount of due diligence before making an investment. Yeah, so what's the average size investment that companies coming to you are looking for? Are they mostly under a well, million or a million in, or 10 million? Is it, they come to us in all stages because there are 45 different ways to capitalize a company. And so we see all stages. We've got companies that are startups and some that are planning their IPOs and growth and so on. But if for an early stage company that's in the seed capital round, um, still at proof of concept, the average is 977,000, so just okay. shy of a million. For companies that are in growth, they're in their first three years, they probably have already got post proof of concept, post revenue, pre-profit, um, that number's closer to three and a half million. And then companies that are um, mature, not mature, but uh, they've at least gotten to a point where now they're looking for marketing dollars, sure. they're looking for scalable growth. Um, that's more of a $10 million number for us. We do have a couple of projects that are closer to 25 million, but those are roll-ups and M&A transactions. Um, so, you know, it's, sometimes we get companies that are seeking very large numbers, at least for us, they're large, meaning anything over 100 million, 500 million. We've, we've had a couple of billion dollar uh, dot pack packages in the last couple of years, but those are companies that are doing 
massive international growth or they're preparing for IPO or whatever the case. Yeah, But I sure. would say to you, and I know I actually know the number pretty well, the average early stage company seed capital is exactly 977 and most of the clients coming to us are in the first three years of business, most often post-revenue, most often post-proof of concept, but pre-profit. Um, that's, our, that's our bread and butter and those clients are typically seeking three to five million. Okay, I tell you, good. Whoever comes up with an app that will—I mean, it's great to be able to find a bathroom in San Francisco. That's terrific. The only trouble is, you might know where the bathroom is, but you've got to drive five miles to find a parking space so that you can walk three miles to get to the bathroom. That's so. <laughs> an app that tells you where there's a spot to park in San Francisco would be a really good app. <laughs> Um, yeah, and that's why purposely, by the way, Good to Go has um, put themselves into Whole Foods markets and Dunkin' Donuts. The yeah. type of facilities that actually have parking is because that's part of the model. Yeah, that's a well understood. And good fact, on, one good of their on. whole business models moving forward is is having bathrooms in parking lots. Is right. part of their business model. So that's, that's, a, that's understood. And that's a really good idea. Okay, so. I'm sitting out there listening to this show and I think, geez, I'm seeking funding and I've hit all my friends and my family and I've picked up six and thruppence. You know, I'm not doing very well. Um, how do I go about getting Blue Moon to take me on as a client? Well, at the end of the day, you go to our website and you register on our site as a, as a potential new client. And then what happens is our staff engages you with a non-disclosure agreement that's a mutual NDA. Yep. And then what we do is we send you out an agreement that says, look, the first step is what we call a situation analysis. Um, we will analyze your current situation based upon not only what you tell us during an interview, but whatever material you send us to review. Sometimes that might only be a presentation deck for other people it could be two or three hundred documents. It doesn't matter to us. We want to be able to review whatever's been created to tell the story. And so we onboard that material into our server, and then we have staff that have been trained to review all the material and write a report called the situation analysis. And there's three main deliverables from that written report. The first is, what is the feasibility of funding and the type of capital most appropriate for the situation that this particular enterprise is in. And so our deliverable then writes that up and presents that. The second is, since we've now identified the type of capital, what materials will be necessary in order to attain that type of capital? You know, do you need a presentation deck or a video? Do you need a private place memorandum? Do you need subscription material? You know, do you need a, a business valuation done? Do you need financial modeling? So those kinds of discoveries are prepared and written in the situation analysis. And then last, if you want to engage Blue Moon, we provide a set of terms um, that lets you know from our perspective what it will cost in time and money to be able to provide that um, set of deliverables. And as part of our service, we do what we can to introduce them to the right parties within our network, assuming that they score 925 or higher in our analysis process known as the capital range report and the CR score. And we only charge $500 for a situation analysis. Um, we do that because 80% of the time, literally four out of five clients, 
that we complete a situation analysis for have a lot of missing pieces. And we want to disclose those missing pieces to them and let them know the realistic nature of what's happening in terms of their situation. Because if we don't believe that they've got funding feasibility, we want to be able to tell them whether they should even be pursuing the enterprise and financing or not. And if so, what hurdles do they need to overcome first? And, and uh, next, one out of five we do believe is fundable and feasibility is high. And in that case, we're very straightforward in what we believe the next step should be and we provide that in the third piece of the situation analysis. Okay, so initially it cost me 500 bucks. Then I get a, an analysis and the analysis says, yeah, you know, it's, it's not a bad idea. We think it's got some potential, but you've got to fix all these things. What's the average amount of money it then costs to get those things done? Well, we bill clients at a rate of 125 an hour and, you know, a, a very simple, straightforward set of materials with, with um, a lot of the material are completed by the client that maybe just needs to be um, cleaned up and organized is typically 20 hours. So 20 hours times 125 is only $2,500. Right. But the reality is, is that the majority of clients need um, much more than that. Typically 200 hours is not abnormal. Um, so 25,000 is more of an average client. And, you know, we have a very specific 90 day plan for those types of clients where in 90 days we can get all the material done and uh, put them into our roadshow schedule, get them introduced to the uh, parties within the Bloomin Advisor Network that may fit their type of capital best. We, we make those introductions and um, that, that entire process from the first day of the situation analysis to the last day of introductions to potential capital um, is about 90 days on average. Okay, so what's, what's unique about your business model? Well, most unique is the fact that we've got our, our scoring system. Right. Um, in 2008, when the economy started going south and it became very difficult to capitalize companies, especially through traditional routes, um, through commercial banking and bank loans, lines of credit, they got really tight as everyone knows. Um, even credit cards were difficult and people's credit card uh, limits were being slashed. And so we had to quickly um, shift a lot of our projects 11 years ago into alternative speculative capital. And because of that, we, we had to also identify um, what, what were the key points to getting those um, alternative speculative capital parties to make their investment. And so um, in 2008 and nine, we developed what we at that time called um, a confidential business assessment, which today is now the capital range report. And over the last 10 years, we refined um, this process into what we call the certified business plan. Right. And what makes it a certified business plan and is truly our differentiation is that the certified business plan addresses all 334 attributes of a successful company. It is a written document um, that's broken down into five main sections, and those five sections um, each have a, a, all of their own individual attributes. And so we write uh, the certified business plan um, in such a way that it's broken down into each individual attribute. Um, and the way that we write it is literally the name of the attribute 
and then we define what that attribute is so that the reader is clear about it, whether they're an investor, a lender, the client themselves, they have clarity on what that particular attribute means and how we score it. And then we write the assessment as it relates to that particular attribute. And then we also define who is the team member responsible to complete, manage, and maintain that particular attribute, either internally or externally at that client's company. Um, I'll just give you an example. So, you know, attribute number 5.2 um, is called customer contracts. That's in section five, the legal risk and documentation section. And so we say, okay, well, the CRR, capital range report definition of customer contracts is an illustration of the agreements that the, that the client has with its customers, vendors, service providers, and so on. And it should include disclosures and it should have agreements between buyers and sellers and what the terms are and nomenclature and so on. And so we then say, based upon that, um, what customer contracts have been provided to Bloomin Advisors in order to assess, we provide that assessment, and then who on the team is responsible for completing, maintaining, and managing such contracts? Is it an external attorney, an internal attorney? Um, do they not have any legal people working on the contracts? And then we can score it one, two, or three um, based upon the answers to those questions, and it's most often a, a balance of subjective and objectiveness in terms of the score itself. And we're very open in our disclosures about how we score it. However, there are algorithms and there are weighted numbers behind the scores themselves. But if you can imagine that if there's 334 attributes and there's three points apiece, that's a thousand points. Um, we've never had a company achieve a thousand. Um, but the one commonality we have found over the last 11 years is that companies that do get funded stay in business and repay their lenders and investors have always scored over 925 out of a thousand and so there's got to be an awful lot of threes and only a few twos yeah okay last question um the so you once once you're ready to go seeking money do you approach the potential investors yourself or do you put it back onto the um client to go and approach the um investors after you make the introduction or how does that work I think that there always needs to be a good balance between those two things. Um, we do have a regular roadshow schedule. Um, uh, about at least once a month, we're doing an event where we invite investors in our network to specific cities around the country. Um, in fact, uh, we just did one in Dallas two weeks ago. We did one in Michigan the month before that. We have an event happening in Newport Beach this coming week on Sunday and Monday. And so what we do is we invite all the people within our network, our balloon advisors, investors, institutional parties, all different types of capital. We invite them to a dinner on Sunday as our usual model. And then on Monday from nine to four, we have investor pitch sessions throughout the day and we host a breakfast and a lunch and it brings the parties all together. And, and for the clients that earn 925 or better, they're invited to those events. Um, so they can present their companies and be able to meet um, our network personally. Um, as, on top of that, we, we also have campaigns that we'll do by phone and email to make introductions. Um, we also have arrangements um, and, and relationships with specific investment bankers, um, broker dealers, angel investors, high net worth individuals, private family offices that, that we know are looking for certain types of deals, um, certain industry sector, subsectors, or specific uh, capital requirements or stages of development. 
And so when we're aware of those relationships, we want to make those introductions. Um, our business model has always been that of a fee-based company. Um, we do not have success fees or broker fees or referral fees as, re- as it relates to the capital piece. Um, but we are aware of the fact that very few clients hire us um, without the expectation of a, at least an introduction at yeah. the end of the documentation process. Sure. Tony Drexel-Smith. Thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, to contact Tony and to find out more about Blue Moon Advisors, go to bluemoonadvisors.com. That's bluemoonadvisors.com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice of America Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the 412th. Bob Pritchard, Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show. We're coming at you on Voice America Business Network, broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard, the entertainment and technology capital of the world, Los Angeles, California. With apps like Seamless, Uber Eats and Deliveroo, the food delivery market is absolutely booming. But it turns out the process of registering a new restaurant in these apps might not be as stringent as you'd expect. London-based Josh Peters demonstrated how people who think they're ordering from an established Italian restaurant could end up with a microwave dinner. Peters and his two buddies launched a website for the Italian Stallion Eatery, listing his own apartment as the address and buying Instagram followers to bolster his social media presence to impress Deliveroo. Deliveroo, you know, Deliveroo is the big international home delivery food company. So Peters and his friends took funny food photos, posted nonsense recipes, and registered Italian Stallion Limited before phoning Deliveroo to explain their lack of a hygiene rating. Peter spoke with the Deliveroo representative on the phone who told him that he can operate without a hygiene rating as long as he's put in an application. (laughs) Jeez. Deliveroo, headquartered in London with operations in 200 cities around the globe, promptly sent Peter's a tablet to take orders with and he was in business. Now, he was delivering prepackaged food from the grocery store downstairs. Peter's and his team managed to register their new restaurant on Deliveroo and began selling microwave meals that they purchased at the supermarket chain Waitrose downstairs. And they sent them to paying customers with no difficulty. So Peter said the process of getting his restaurant, the Italian Stallion on Deliveroo, took about three weeks. A lot of back and forth, making sure everything was right and then getting them signed on and waiting for the tablet to arrive and other details. On the day that Peters made the Italian stallion available for delivery on Deliveroo, orders started coming in, and as soon as he added a discount to the restaurant, it went haywire. He and his partner then 
had to run down to the Waitrose below Peter's apartment, pick up whatever ready meals the customers had ordered, heat up the food in their microwave in his kitchen and bring it down to the delivery person in the allotted 15 minutes that Deliveroo allows for food prep. So they weren't sure how this was going to work. At first, they thought that they might have to have the restaurant open for a week and get as many orders as possible. But as soon as they turned the discount on, all of a sudden they got loads of orders. The only problem was they had to continue to run up and down the stairs to buy the microwave food, to whack in the microwave in his kitchen and prepare it for delivery. They're obviously selling microwave meals at a high premium price. They'd buy them for a couple of bucks and sell them for 12 to 15. And to keep up with the demand, they constructed a bucket pulley system along the side of the building to get meals from the grocery store into their apartment's microwave faster. So somebody would be down in the supermarket buying the, the microwave food, throwing it into a bucket, they'd hoist it up to their apartment, throw it in the microwave, heat it up, put it in fancy packaging and send off the delivery goo guy. Fantastic. In each meal delivery, Peter's crew in, included a note and the customer's cash back in an envelope since they were making a killing on it. But judging by the feedback they received on the food, getting the money back was just an added bonus. Customers said the food was great. Peter's made a video of the prank and it was watched over 183,000 times in four days on YouTube. That is brilliant. Great story. Remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. Get out of the way. Let somebody who wants to be successful go past you and achieve. You know, it's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Any bastard out there can be ordinary. It is so easy to be ordinary. 99% of the population's ordinary. It's the ones that aren't ordinary that are the huge successes. So if you're always trying to be normal, you're always gonna be boring. And you'll never know how great it feels to do something really exceptional. In the meanwhile, I hope you have a great week. Continue to be successful because of the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard broadcasting today from my wonderful hometown of Los Angeles, where technology meets entertainment. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.